0: What year is this? 2020, right? So I had to do it. I got to give this shout out to Shane because now we have this habit occasionally. He works, of course, a lot of times over in this office and I'm here, so we'll meet together just to say hi, right? An hour later, after we've been talking about everything imaginable, okay, we basically, he said to me, he says, you know what? What do you think of when you think of 2020, vision, right? Diane's going, I got that. That was good. That was... So thinking 2020 vision, guess what we're doing? And I promise you, we will get back to the book of Romans in February. For January, I couldn't help myself. We're going to do a brief series, three sermons on 2020 vision, and take a look at some of the foundational principles, organizing principles behind Spruce Creek's vision. I want you to just think about vision for a second and the importance of vision. You know, John Calvin in his institutes used spectacles or glasses as an illustration for the scriptures. He said, the scriptures are like glasses that you must put on if you're going to know God, understand God, know who he is, understand the world right, even know yourself, He says, without these spectacles, the scriptures, we are unable to see. You're not going to know God correctly without the scriptures. You're not going to know yourself correctly without the scriptures telling us that we are, in Francis Schaeffer's words, glorious ruins. I mean, we are, think about what the scriptures talk about in terms of mankind, made in the image of God, made just a little lower than the angels. I mean, that's glory, and yet fallen, rebelled from God. So we're glorious runes. Where do we learn that? We learn that in the scriptures. I remember getting my first pair of glasses when I was 19 years old. I thought I was just a bad student, which was true, but I had a second reason. I couldn't see. I was and continue to be quite nearsighted. And so at age 19, I go to the eye doctor, I put on glasses, and I went, I can see, but I'm still a bad student. But I... I just didn't have an excuse anymore. So in the same way, while the scriptures are the ultimate glasses or spectacles for our faith and our lives, we, if you think about this, if we are going to apply the scriptures, and John Frame, one of my teachers, one of Rick's teachers, would say all of knowledge for it to be true knowledge is application. Again, taking our cue from the scriptures, Paul said to Timothy, all scriptures breathed out, inspired by God, and is useful. In other words, you don't know the usefulness, the application of it. You don't really know the Scriptures. And so if we're going to apply the Scriptures well in our current context, that means the year 2020 in Central Florida, in Volusia County, Florida, living in our culture, living in our world, we need to have some organizing principles to guide us. And that's what a vision is. Basically, does. It's not comprehensive, but it says, okay, we're going to take a look at what the scriptures say as our sole authority for faith and life. How can we then put it and organize it a little bit so that for our ministry, our leadership, the questions we ask, and our faith, it can serve as a guide? And so, for us, if you picture it here at Spruce Creek and we talk about our ultimate mission. Taking it from what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, our mandate is to what? To go and make disciples of who? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey. Sometimes we forget this is part of the commission. Teaching them to obey everything, not just our favorite passages, but everything Jesus taught us. Okay? If that is our mandate, our commission to go and make followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, one way to kind of think about, well, what does that look like, is under three headings. So this is kind of a summary statement. And guess what? It organizes well into a three week sermon series as well. Don't you love when everything comes together? I do. We can look at it under three headings Gospel, Community, and Mission. Anybody paying attention when I prayed, by the way, last week? Did you notice I gave a commercial and a teaser for this when I structured my pastoral prayer under gospel, community, and mission? It's almost like I planned this sermon series. I'm not winging it up here today. Okay? So when we look at it, when we highlight these three themes, okay, the gospel is the good news of Jesus and his kingdom that does what? It forms a people, a community. His special treasured possession for himself, who is his instrument to accomplish his mission in the world. In other words, it's not our mission. As one writer put it, God has a mission, and he has a church for his mission. And so, in other words, for the next several weeks, for the month of January, we're basically going to look at these three themes, gospel, community, and mission. And where are we starting this morning? We are starting on the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. The text we are using this morning is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And so before I read it, let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to lead us as we encounter God in his word. Father, we thank you, and I know I am woefully inadequate for this task. I'm humbled by the fact that I have the privilege of being able to proclaim your word, and I, as much as anyone else, need to come under it and listen to it, and we need to know that you are the one speaking in and through your word this morning. And so I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. I will ask you if you were able to stand one more time for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, take a look at the text with me. It gives us context. This is after Jesus' baptism, after he's been driven out by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted By the devil, it says then that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So much of Jesus' ministry was made up of teaching and and proclamation, teaching and preaching. That's what the scriptures choose uh, to share with us, to tell us. You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, I don't know if you know this about me, but I love to read. (laughs) Anybody know? I love books. Books are just about my favorite thing in the world. You know, I'm blessed. Many of you give Christmas gifts to Evie and I and different stuff. And I got to admit, I love when I get a gift card or something like that because as much as Evie begs me, please buy new clothes. Please get a shirt that you've had less than 10 years. Please guess what I do. I'm on that Amazon app quicker than you would know you know you walk into my study over here and that's only that's one study out of two. There are just as many books at home Evie's going, "Okay, when you buy clothes, would you please buy more bookshelves for the home study since books are There's this verse at the end of the Gospel of John that I just absolutely marvel at. That says if everything was recorded that Jesus ever did Perhaps not even the whole world could contain all the books. I go, wow! (laughs) Can you imagine that library? Just walking... I I just imagine... See, you all, some of you are much more aesthetically in tune than I am. I just sit there and go, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to walk into the sanctuary and see it filled floor to ceiling with books. I'm swimming in books. Okay? The scriptures, though, focus on... Jesus' public proclamation of the gospel. So if everything was recorded, it, the books couldn't even contain what it was, and yet what the scriptures choose, so what God as the ultimate author of the scriptures choose to highlight is the public proclamation of the gospel. My point behind this illustration is how important is the public proclamation of the gospel? If everything he did, I just, this is kind of a comparative exercise. If everything he did, so he did an awful lot if the books, if the world couldn't contain the books, and yet, what do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John choose to, in a sense, camp at or focus upon? Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And what did he proclaim? The, the content of his proclamation was this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand the gospel proclamation centered on the kingdom of god it was about the kingdom the gospel by definition is the gospel of the kingdom remember that the word gospel the word the greek word euangelion means good news it's not advice it's not counsel It's not even, and I'll show this in just a minute, it's not the benefits of the gospel, nor is it the events of the gospel. The gospel, by definition, so when we say the gospel, what we mean is news that's heralded, news that we take in, news that we respond to. And so we want to look at this text, and we want to look at this good news of the gospel from two perspectives this morning. First, we want to look at what does it look like to understand the content of the good news in order to respond to the good news. I'm not a car mechanic. I don't know anything about cars. In fact, I remember an old, old I'm really dating myself now. How many of you remember the old Dick Van Dyke show? Anybody remember? I love this audience. <laughs> when I give it, some of you were going, Dick who? <laughs> Look it up on YouTube. There was one episode of the Dick Van Dyke show where he opened the hood of his car, and he just kind of went, uh-huh, uh-huh, an engine. That's me, okay? I know nothing about mechanics. But I do know there is something called pistons, and they go up and down or something like that. This is kind of, there's a point to this illustration, by the way. The point is, I want you to think about this text like pistons. The more you understand the good news, the more it leads you to respond to the good news. So our life is a constantly take in the gospel in order to respond to the gospel. Now let's fill that in. What does it look like to understand the good news? Jack Miller once said, he said, there is more lying done on Sunday morning than any other day in the week. He says at 11 o'clock, the worst lying is absolutely done. He says, here's what I mean. A lot of people pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he writes, we would be horrified if it actually happened. He says, we may be praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. But what we're really praying is, my kingdom come, my agenda be done. On earth as it's done in my heart and mind. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. If you look at the text, what does it say? He says, He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, So, verse 15 is giving you the content of his proclamation. The content of the proclamation is, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So, at heart, the definition, the news of the gospel is the reality of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. Now, things that we talk about and we call the gospel are technically not the definition of the gospel. They're events of the gospel and they're realities or benefits of the gospel. Here's what I mean. See, I'm being very, and forgive me if you don't like this, but I'm being theologically precise here. Maybe I'm showing more of my OCD personality. I don't know. But the definition of the gospel is the inauguration or the inbreaking. It's good news of the kingdom of God. It has certain gospel events, true, real, historical events that are part of this news. Things like we just celebrated Christmas, Jesus' birth, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost are all. Technically, events that are part of the good news. His incarnation is a real event. His death is a real historical event. And they bring real gospel benefits. Benefits like regeneration. Rick preached last week that our heart of stone is changed into a heart of flesh. That's because the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again into a new birth. That's a benefit of the gospel. That is not the definition of the gospel, but it's a reality, it's a benefit. We're united to Christ, where everything that's true of Jesus becomes true of us. So like we could be justified, the legal declaration that we are both forgiven and righteous. That is not, Rick talked about pushback earlier, I wait and see how much pushback I get from this. I'm being radical here for a second, but I'm being radically precise. That is not, the heart of the definition of the gospel. What it is, is the central centrality of the heart of one of the greatest benefits of the gospel. It is a gospel benefit that God legally and positionally and really declares you to be forgiven and righteous. So it's a major benefit of the good news of the work of the world's true Lord, Jesus Christ. So now let's put this proclamation, this news of Jesus, into some context. When Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, the start of the proclamation was, verse 14, the time is fulfilled. That means something must have been expected. Something must have been anticipated. One writer puts it this way, and I love how he puts it. He says, What good news regularly does then is to put a new event into an old story, point to a wonderful future hitherto out of reach, and so introduce a new period in which instead of living a hopeless life, people are now waiting with excitement for what they now know is on the way. He writes, the Christian good news is supposed to be this kind of thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes as news within a larger story, the story of Israel, the story that's given to us in the Old Testament. It points to a wonderful new future, and it introduces a new period of waiting that changes our expectation. Another writer says, the kingdom of God, he says, the time is fulfilled, what's being anticipated is the inbreaking of God's kingdom, And the dynamic of God's kingship is now applied. And he writes, in the Old Testament, we find prophetic hopes that pointed to a time when God would intervene and bring restoration to his people Israel and to his fallen creation. It was about a people being reconciled to God, people being at peace with each other, all of the created order of plants and animals existing in harmony, wars ceasing, and governments submitting to the divine kingship of God. The time is fulfilled. What's been anticipated is being launched, is being inaugurated. Certainly not completed. Have wars ceased? No. Does death still occur? Yep. Do we still experience anxiety and doubt and fear and guilt and all? Absolutely. It's what the Bible calls, and this is such a crucial doctrine for us to have straight, the already and the not yet. Let me illustrate it this way. The kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's near, it's been launched, it's been inaugurated. Let's take a look at it from another scripture. In John chapter 14, Jesus gives us this beautiful promise where he says, My peace I give unto you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now that's a kingdom promise, We can have the peace of Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the world's true Lord. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords who can authoritatively bestow his promises. And we already receive that. Let me ask you this question. Do you receive the promise of peace? It's a wonderful promise, right? And we experience it a lot, right? We truly experience in our lives. But do we experience to its fullness? I know I still get anxiety. I still suffer with fear. I still have doubts. I still have obsessive compulsive disorder. I have things that threaten my peace. That's because we already have the inauguration of the kingdom of God. It's at hand. It's not a hundred percent future. It's already been launched, but it will be completed in the future. And it impacts how we live. So in the Old Testament, we find these prophetic hopes pointing to this renewal of all things, restoration of all things. So for example, we read in Isaiah 61, speaking of one of these hopes, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So they're looking forward to the time when this servant, this Messiah will come. And the Lord will anoint him to do what? To bring good news to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. So in other words, the time is fulfilled. This has been launched. Another way to put it, I love this, and I've shared this illustration with you before from C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. Remember the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? And the four children, Lucy, Peter, Edmund, and Susan, they stumble into the magical land of Narnia from the wardrobe. And the true king of the land, the true ruler, the true prince, the true king, is the majestic lion Aslan. When the children first stumble into Narnia, they discover what? It's under the rule of the evil white witch who has cursed the land so that it is perpetually in a very cold winter with no Christmas. But at one point in the story, the time is fulfilled. Christmas does come, and Father Christmas comes giving gifts. And springtime, begins to invade the bitter winter of the white witch's reign. Snow begins to melt. Flowers begin to bloom, and the birds begin to chirp. What is going on? Aslan is on the move. The witch's spell is weakening. It's not over, but it's been defeated. It has been forever broken. We come to understand that whatever, whenever Aslan draws near, springtime, newness, breaks out in the midst of the bitter winter of the White Witch. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. This is what the good news of the kingdom is all about. The kingdom's been launched. Springtime. There are elements of springtime all around us. Like when we come to worship. And we exalt in song and praise our Lord and King. When we greet one another, when we pray for one another, when we're kind to one another, when we see the fruit of the Spirit, when we experience some of that shalom, some of that peace, we see that the reign of Jesus has begun. And the reign of the evil one, though not completely over, it has been inaugurated. It's broken in. It's been fundamentally inbreaking into the world as we eventually see especially through the cross of Jesus. And so, in other words, if we understand that the good news means understanding that the long-awaited, the time is fulfilled, rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God has arrived, it's come to earth, it's broken into history, let's ask this question. What's the only way to respond? What's the other piston, so to speak? And our text tells us, verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. Now let's define those terms. First of all, what does repentance mean? The Greek word, the word metanoia means literally a change of mind. It is a turning. You change your mind about one thing and you believe in the gospel meaning you think differently about something else. So you turn away from what you were looking to to satisfy your desires and your life and your heart and you look to Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom to be the only thing that can truly satisfy you. It's like two sides of the same coin. Now, here's one of the reasons why I'm using and I don't know if it's a good good illustration or not, but you're putting up with me. I'm using this piston illustration because the pistons of the car have to continue to go, right? They can't be a one-time thing if the car's going to function. Here's my point. I think a lot of us think of repentance as kind of a one-time or maybe a minimal thing. Like we go, oh, my wife confronted me because I committed this big sin and I'm convicted and so I repent. I turn away from my whatever it is I did and I ask Jesus for forgiveness and I do what? Move on with my merry old life, doing whatever I want, living my own way. Now, you know, one of the heroes of the Reformation was whom? Martin Luther. And Martin Luther pinned those 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg. And the first one said this, quoting this particular verse, that whenever when Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, he meant for the entire life of the Christian to be one of repentance. Did you hear that? The piston of the car, the pistons of the engine of your heart needs to be a continual understanding of the gospel, which leads us to a continual turning away from anything that we have allegiance to, to making our central allegiance Jesus Christ and his kingdom. A continual repentance and faith. We turn away from any competing allegiances. Let me give you a challenge and an application as we kind of begin to wrap this up and think about this. A discipline that I was taught and picked up in seminary, one of the books, I don't remember every book that I read in seminary. One I do remember, and I really don't even remember the whole book, but I remember one chapter of the book. It's by Gordon MacDonald, and it's called Ordering Your Private World. And in it, he has a chapter on journaling. And he describes journaling this way. He says, with your Bible open and your journal open, it is a way of processing listening to God. I'm always amazed that I can have a, my Bible open and a verse open. In fact, one of my best Christmas gifts this year was Joel gave me a new journal. He knows that I like to journal, and so he gave me a new journal for Christmas. I've broken it in already. And so one of the things I do is I have my Bible open and I begin to write. No plan, no agenda, I just begin to write. And it's amazing. So I'll have a verse, like I may have a verse that talks about the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and I'll begin to write and I'll be going, whoa, I didn't know I was thinking that. I didn't know I was feeling that ooh, I'm a little more angry than I thought, or I'm a little bit more this than I thought, or I'm a little bit more that, and what does that lead to? I'm processing now, listening to God, as the Spirit is using his word to do what? To convict me and lead me into the good news of Jesus, I'm repenting and believing the gospel. Let me make a challenge for you. Very specific channel challenge. Get a journal, and here's one of the things I'd challenge you to write. What are the things in my life that are competing for my allegiance? What are the things in my life that are competing with Jesus, who alone deserves my full and complete and total allegiance, but they're competing for my allegiance? So I'll give a couple examples. You may be a student, and maybe grades are very important to you, but maybe they're too important to you because... Are they, is it more important to get a good grade? Or is it to learn because you're learning a part of God's truth in God's world that is propelling you to worship? What has your allegiance? Or examine your relationships. Is your allegiance to the truth and the life and the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Or is your allegiance to other people liking you? Other people being happy with you? Other people thinking well of you. What is competing with Jesus for the allegiance of your heart? Because the response to the gospel is not, Oh good, let me get more information. The response to the gospel is repentance and faith. If the gospel is not leading you to change, you're not understanding the gospel. And I'm talking about personality, behavioral change. So let me ask you this question. If you're looking at it, is your life... See, I looked at it this way when we prayed last week. When we had the prayer, I said... And Rick rightly talked about kind of forsaking resolution Christianity. Remember that whole thing? And see, ask the question, who are you becoming? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Does your life and speech and actions resemble things like the Beatitudes... The fruit of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13. These are all things that are aspects of the gospel of the kingdom. If your life does not resemble poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, maybe we have some things to repent and believe. Are you repenting of these things? Do you see yourself? Sacrificing more because the gospel is essentially about love, and love is essentially about sacrifice. See, the fundamental question is who are we living for? We living for ourselves or are we living for the one? See, think about now what believing the gospel means. Essentially, the gospel is the good news that Jesus gave Himself for you. God is love, and love is essentially self giving. And the greatest expression of God's self-giving was on the cross, where Jesus gave himself for you. Is your life being conformed to that? Who are you living for? Are you living for yourself, or are you living for Christ? My favorite quote on this is the one I heard from Tim Keller years ago, quoting Rebecca Pippert, who worked for InterVarsity staff. She writes, What does it mean, then, to allow Jesus to be Lord of our lives? Just this. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. If Jesus is our Lord, then he is the one who controls, he is the ultimate power. There are no bargains. We cannot manipulate him by playing, let's make a deal. If he is Lord, the only option open to us is to do his will, to let him have control. Of course, Jesus remains Lord, whether we accept him or not. His lordship, his essence, is not affected by our response, but our lives are drastically changed by our response. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. How do you respond? Repent and believe the gospel. Father, we thank you, and I pray that Spruce Creek Church would have as one of the hubs, maybe the foundational hub of our vision, the gospel of the kingdom. Father, we pray now that you would come to us as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.